So religious experience. I'm not sure if this really fits into the cumulative case model. You know, I guess you could say, yeah, it's more likely that people would have religious experiences if there is a genuine transcendent reality. If there is no genuine transcendent reality, then why would you expect people throughout different cultures, different times to report having transcendent experiences? That's not really the angle that I took. My angle is just, hey, if you've had an experience of God, then you're rational in believing in God. You know, maybe the evidential case for atheism could overcome that, but it would have to be a pretty powerful evidential case. So yeah, this sort of argument is defensive. It's not really intended to convince anyone else. It's just saying that those who have had the experience are rational in taking their experiences at face value until they're given a really good reason to not take them at face value. So yes, this is very defensive. But one other potential question about this sort of argument is, how many people have actually had that sort of experience? You know, maybe it's not a visual experience exactly, but it's something where I just appear to be experiencing God, like I'm being appeared to in some way by God and experience. How many people actually have that experience? (laughs) Certainly not everyone who goes to church, you know, certainly not everyone who's a theist. But, you know, okay, so maybe those are potential shortcomings, but even though it's defensive, even though it only describes a subset of believers, it's still the case that if it seems to you that you're being appeared to by God, then in the absence of defeaters, it's entirely rational for you to believe so. You know, in the same way that if you were accused of a crime on the basis of convincing publicly available evidence, but you remember where you were that day, you don't remember committing any crime, you can trust that you didn't do it just on the basis of your memory. There's some stuff in the background about you don't uh, black out for periods of time. You have generally trustworthy faculties and so on. Okay, well, even if the public evidence against you is convincing, shouldn't really persuade you, right? Just on the basis of your internal seemings. You've got these memory seemings And that evidence is not defeated by the public evidence against you, even if it's like, oh, you were picked out of a lineup by a few different people. And there's video evidence of this guy who kind of looks like you. You There's eyewitness testimony. Your fingerprints were at the scene. None of that is going to convince you. You're like, hey, man, I remember where I was, and I think I would have remembered committing this crime. Sort of a side point here, which I wish more people would internalize, is that even though the publicly available evidence is the same for everyone. We occupy different positions on the grand epistemic landscape, so we can come to opposite conclusions with the same rational faculties. So we have the same ability to assess the evidence, we have the same evidence, we've come to opposite conclusions, and we're both rational. (laughs) You know, something in line with this is a passage from The Varieties of Religious Experience from William James, where I think he exposes a kind of epistemic double standard held among skeptics of mystical experiences. So let me just read this long quote. I wish I had time to read this during the debate. But Mystical states, when well-developed, usually are and have the right to be absolutely authoritative over the individuals to whom they come. Our own more rational beliefs are based on evidence exactly similar in nature to that which mystics quote for theirs. Our senses, namely, have assured us of certain states of fact, but mystical experiences are as direct perceptions of fact for those who have them as any sensations ever were for us. 
the records show that even though the five senses be in abeyance in them, they are absolutely sensational in their epistemological quality. Yet, I repeat once more, the existence of mystical states absolutely overthrows the pretension of non-mystical states to be the sole and ultimate dictators of what we may believe. It is the rationalistic critic, rather, who plays the part of denier in the controversy, and his denials have no strength, for there never can be a state of facts to which new meaning may not truthfully be added, provided the mind ascend to a more enveloping point of view. It must always remain an open question whether mystical states may not possibly be such superior points of view, windows through which the mind looks out upon a more extensive and inclusive world. The difference of the views seen from the different mystical windows need not prevent us from entertaining this supposition. The wider world would in that case prove to have a mixed constitution, like that of this world. That is all. End quote. So yeah, he's making, I think, a sort of phenomenal conservative point there. And he says, like, these religious experiences, these mystical experiences, are sensational in their epistemological quality. I don't think he was saying, they're sensational. <laughs> you know, they have to do with sensation of hearing, seeing, etc. So yeah, it's like you have these seemings, and that's what informs your belief about the external world generally. And people who have mystical experiences say, hey, I think this stuff is a part of the wider world. So there seems to be sort of a double standard here. It's like, oh, that doesn't count. Why not? It's the same type of evidence. And he points out, like, you can always learn more about the world. We're probably never going to be at, at an end point. And then at the very end, he brings up the point about disagreement. Quote, the differences of the views seen from different mystical windows need not prevent us from entertaining this supposition. The wider world would in that case prove to have a mixed constitution like that of this world. That is all. So yeah, people have disagreements about this world. And people have disagreements about the transcendent reality. But there is disagreement about, you know, quote-unquote ordinary reality. So why is this of unique concern in the religious arena? And besides, maybe they're all right. Maybe the wider world just has a mixed constitution like that of this world. And I think it's also worth taking into account the difficulty of expressing some of these truths in language. I think there are genuinely ineffable truths things that are true that really can't be said. When you have these mystical experiences and try to talk about them, it's very difficult. And I think anyone who's taken any strong hallucinogens can attest to this. Or just, you know, if you have any kind of transcendent experience and you try to explain it, <laughs> it never, never really does justice to the experience, you know? And I think this makes sense, like, from an evolutionary perspective, because consciousness arose before language. You know, my cats almost certainly have a private, subjective point of view. They have an inner mental life. I don't think they have language. You know, they have very crude forms of communication, but, but they don't have language like as we define it with human beings. Regardless of your views about philosophy of mind, um, it's pretty clear, I think, that non-human animals are conscious, even though they don't have language. So it stands to reason that consciousness came about before language. So, it makes sense to me that there would be states of consciousness that are ineffable. St you know, truths that you can see and experience, but can't express in language. I think given the fact that consciousness is so much older than language, I mean, I think that adds up. So then people have these non-ordinary states of consciousness, and then they just kind of fail to communicate their significance with language, 
And then when they try, there appear to be all these surface-level conflicts. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that's really great evidence because these states of consciousness are notoriously hard to articulate in language. They seem genuinely ineffable. They cannot be effed. And when you try to eff them, it comes out sounding kind of stupid. Maybe not stupid, but just like trite, you know, like people will come out like, everything is love. Why don't you go stitch that on a pillow and I'm going to get back to uh, my life now. There are truths that you appreciate and you try to write them down. <laughs> it just doesn't translate. Anyway, so the fact that when people try to express them in language, there are these prima facie conflicts. I mean, there are two responses to that. One, the wider world might just have a mixed constitution, like that of this world. And secondly, the fact that these truths seem largely ineffable, I think could explain the apparent conflicts when people try to express them. But, you know, God could have made religious experiences determinate and unambiguous, such that there was no confusion at all. We already talked about this in the section about religious disagreement, but, you know, which disagreements? Are they mere differences, or are they core disagreements? Like, like what are the stakes? Does it really matter if people disagree about this? Why is it unexpected, exactly? But I think some people have transcendent experiences, and they're not really of God, per se. They're just transcendent experiences, and they get classified as mystical or religious. So, of the religious disagreements that are relevant here, that are not mere differences, that seem to give people conflicting information about, like, which God exists and what he wants from us. You know, so like different prophets, for instance. Again, I think that certain religious believers will have resources for this that others don't. So, if you wanted to skip ahead and be like, okay, what kind of religious believer are you? Because some of them are not really going to have a hard time with this. Others will definitely. And as I said, I don't think this is purely just skipping ahead. I think that you can kind of derive certain clues about the afterlife and soteriology from perfect being theism itself. So, you know, two potential defeaters. One is just that the evidential case is so overwhelming. The other is religious disagreement. Spent a lot of time on that one previously. Um, there are two other objections to religious experience that I wanted to mention. One is about our hyperactive agency detection device. You know, can that explain religious experience? So, yeah, I mean, that can explain some religious experiences, but it's kind of implausible to think that this can explain all religious experiences. You know, it's only a subset of religious experiences that don't go beyond mere agency detection. And that's what this can explain. It can, it can explain agency detection, even if there is no agent. Okay, fair enough. And I actually have a friend who just wrote a long paper about hyperactive agency detection. And I plan on having him on the show to talk about cognitive science of religion and psychology of religion, probably in the next few months. He actually has a channel, I forgot, um, Naturalism Next. They only have one video so far, but um, it's a good video. <laughs> Anyway, I asked him this question, and he agreed that it can explain some, but not all, religious experiences. And further, our agency detection, it's not like it always misfires. You know, it's accurate more often than not. Way more often than not. So, maybe it's misfiring when we experience God. So, just take the experiences that can be explained through our hyperactive agency detection. Okay, well, how do we know it's actually, you know, being hypersensitive in that context. Like, maybe it's misfiring when we experience God, but maybe it's not. It could be working just as it's designed to work. 
I think when I first started talking about this sort of thing a few years ago, I sort of thought that like the mere existence of this hyperactive agency detection device, I was like, oh, well, that just settles it, you know, because we both believe in this thing. You know, theists and naturalists both agree that this thing exists. You know, how many times have you mistakenly thought there was an agent, you know, creeping around your house or your apartment or something? You hear a noise and you're like, is someone outside the window? Oh, it is someone in the apartment. Even if you don't really think that that's true, you can't help but think it. And if you're like me, you can't help but get up and just check. <laughs> you know, and, and non-human animals have this same thing, you know. I remember Dennett giving this example of, you know, snow falling off his roof and his dog flipping out and thinking there's an intruder. It's like, yeah, everyone has this. Or conversely, how many times have you failed to notice an agent, you know, if someone's like sufficiently camouflaged or if you just didn't notice them. The point is that your agency detection device does not work perfectly. Sometimes it misfires, sometimes it fails to fire, fires when there's no agent, doesn't fire when there is an agent. Most of the time it works, but it's not perfect. And once we know that this thing exists, and theists should of course concede that this thing exists, this phenomenon or this module or, or whatever, then it's like, okay, well, you, you grant that we could explain at least some religious experiences like this. Well, then this is kind of the simpler explanation, isn't it? Because we both already have this as a part of our ontology, and once you grant that it can explain the data, then you're kind of adding these like explanatorily redundant postulates you know, that are not really adding anything. So maybe that would be the argument. Another objection, and I skipped over this one during the debate because I've seen this sort of thing mentioned in conversation, but I can't imagine it's been defended. I mean, who knows? I've seen so many silly things about neuroscience and consciousness. I wouldn't put it past someone to try to do this, but I mostly just hear it like in conversation like, oh, well, neuroscientists can explain like this part of the brain is active, you know, when you're having a religious experience, you know, we can put you in the God helmet and have a religious experience, doesn't that just prove it, you know, that it's all just fake? So, you know, can neuroscience explain religious experiences? So I'm just going to read this part that I had written. Skeptics will sometimes appeal to neural correlates of religious experiences, pointing out with varying degrees of specificity that the brain is active while these religious experiences take place. What seems implicit here is the following line of reasoning. Because these experiences were chemically mediated, they can't be trusted. So that's obviously wrong because all your experiences are chemically mediated. Yes, there are neural correlates to religious experience, but presenting the neural correlates of a perceived tree does not imply the tree is a hallucination. All your thoughts, everything you think, every line of reasoning you follow, all sense data that come in, all of your experiences are neurologically mediated in some sense. No one denies it, and certainly some of your experiences have epistemic credibility. The argument that neurologically mediated states of consciousness cannot be truth-tracking is not just incorrect. Your thought that providing the neural basis of religious experience would debunk those experiences is also chemically mediated and can also be described neurologically. So appeals to neuroscience of this sort are nonsensical and self-defeating. So, you know, imagine if instead of a god helmet, I had a helmet that could make you think, neuroscience debunks religious experiences. I mean, would that debunk the argument that, like, 
It's just a self-defeating view that like once we understand the neural correlates of this view, it proves that it's not true. (laughs) Once I can show the neural correlates of a tree, it proves the tree is just a hallucination. Once I can show the neural correlates of, you know, making this argument, then I prove that the argument is actually a bad argument. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, it's self-defeating. And, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, all of your experiences are neurologically mediated. And as I said, no one denies it, not even dualists. No one denies that, you know, in some sense, your inner world is neurologically mediated. It's a very vague statement, you know. It's compatible with all different views. And some of your experiences have epistemic credibility. So just because there are neural correlates, I mean, that fact does precisely nothing to undermine the veridicality of the experiences. So Philippe Leon developed this argument. He has a list of like a hundred arguments against God or something like that. Um, And this is on the list, the phenomenon of anti-religious experience. You know, I buy into phenomenal conservatism, so to quote uh, a certain apologist, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, I have no epistemic double standard here. I think that religious experience and irreligious experience provide prima facie evidence supporting their respective conclusions. As I mentioned earlier, I think we can occupy different positions on the epistemic landscape. So what is irreligious or anti-religious experience? I think it'd be best just to show an example. So this is from a Holocaust survivor, quoted in Brenner, The Faith and Doubt of Holocaust Survivors, page 110. Quote, This is what I think. We were sent forth by humanity, by mankind, although it was not even aware it was doing so, to find out once and for all if there's a God. That's the meaning of the camps. It was meant to bring him out into the open if he existed at all. Nothing else or less significant could have brought him out into the open to respond, to act, and to show his face. It was a stupendous test, unconscious and unintentional, but a test nevertheless. And God failed the test and proved his own non-existence. And I, as a part of the experiment, stopped believing in him altogether. Just as certain laboratory experiments are conclusive and incontrovertible, so was this. If he wouldn't come out then, during those times, when? Now when man writes his history, he can say there was a vast laboratory experiment conducted by man during the 1940s to see if there is a god or not. The conclusion was no god exists. There were guinea pigs in the test and other kinds of experimental animals, but mainly guinea pigs. Jews, of course. I know, I was one of them. End quote. So, lots of people experience the absence of god, or things that entail the non-existence of god. There might be evils that no being would be morally permitted to allow if it was within their power to prevent them, just intrinsically impermissible. So if one has prima facie justification for believing that evils of this kind have taken place in our world, then they have prima facie justification for believing that God doesn't exist, since the existence of intrinsically impermissible evils entails the non-existence of God, at least the kind of God that I outlined near the beginning. Felipe Leon argued that the experiences that many people have, being overwhelmed by the apparent realization that reality is a cold and uncaring place, indifferent to their welfare, 
that those experiences are more likely on the hypothesis of indifference. Since on the hypothesis of indifference, that's true. (laughs) But on theism, those belief-triggering experiences are surprising, since we'd expect God to design our cognitive faculties to reliably generate accurate beliefs about reality, for one, but also because those experiences of divine silence and hiddenness prevent many of those people from having a relationship with God, so the belief-triggering experiences are misleading them. Their cognitive faculties appear to be misleading them. They're inaccurately reflecting reality in a way that drives a wedge between them and God. So, the experience of the absence of God and the indifference of the universe, according to Leon, provides at least some confirming evidence for indifference over theism. But, more pertinent to the way that I've been presenting religious experience, the experience of the absence of God arguably is on par epistemically with the experience of God. Sarah Adams and John Robson argued exactly this in the International Journal for Philosophy of Religion. You know, to quote William James, these irreligious states have the right to be absolutely authoritative over the individuals to whom they come, and these irreligious experiences are as direct perceptions of fact for those who have them as any sensations ever were for us. It might seem like an almost mystical apprehension of a higher truth about the world, the appearance of which is so powerful it would require a strong evidential case to overcome. Okay, so there does seem to be a sort of parody here. And I don't bring this up as like a defeater for religious experience, by the way. I'm just pointing out that atheists have the same kind of resources at their disposal. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting question whether anti-religious experiences are permitted to have the same authority over those who have them. So there are a few different ways to go about the argument from anti-religious experience. One is to take it as a small bit of confirming evidence. Another is the apprehension of an event or events that entail the non-existence of God. And it could also be more direct, an experience of the absence of God that has a sort of epistemic parody with the experience of God. I swear I'll get back to defending atheism after this. I will say that the last couple weeks, and even the last couple months, have been good for me. I think it's a good idea to step into the theist's shoes for longer than 10 minutes. But anyway, you're not going to catch me saying silly things like, there is no evidence for theism, or something like that. Like, really, there's, there's nothing in our world that theism assigns a higher probability to than naturalism. There's nothing that is perhaps slightly unexpected on your worldview, but less unexpected on a theist. There's not one thing. Anyway, the point is that an atheist can admit that there's some evidence for theism. I'm an atheist because I think it's swamped by the evidence for atheism, particularly by arguments from evil. And by the way, a great litmus test, it's not perfect, but a, a litmus test for whether a theist is worth listening to or not is whether they admit that evil is evidence against theism. If a theist can't admit that there's any evidence against their position, then that is a sure sign that they're not worth listening to. If you don't think there's any evidence against your position, I don't know, what are the odds of that being true? You know, it seems more likely that maybe 
you just haven't really considered the other position. You haven't really tried to empathize with that point of view. That seems like maybe a better explanation than your worldview is literally perfect and there's no evidence against it. So let's just sum up the four main arguments we've discussed. We've tried to answer a few atheistic arguments along the way, like divine hiddenness and religious confusion. And I've kind of surprised myself with some of the conclusions I've come to exploring those two issues. But there are four arguments I made in defense of theism. So first, the existence of consciousness. I think this argument works, but only constitutes weak evidence in favor of theism. And that seems to be the general verdict among people who don't try to maintain that the evidence is understated in this case. Second, psychophysical harmony. I think this argument works and is good evidence for theism. I'm not going to lie, I think this evidence is actually kind of strong. I'm holding out for someone to come and offer devastating objections, and maybe as time goes on I'll see some angle that I missed at first. But for now, it seems like I'm finally being forced to take spooky naturalism more seriously. I don't just mean rejecting physicalism, because as you probably know, I've been there for a long time, but I mean accepting something like Thomas Nagel's natural teleology. That was always a passing interest of mine, but if I take this argument seriously, I think I'm being forced to adopt something like natural teleology and actively defend it. So naturalism can live on, but it's possible that the real debate is not between theism and something like the hypothesis of indifference. Well, I mean, maybe that's not exactly right, because a lot of people sort of define indifference based on vibes, and they don't really look at the actual definition of it that was given by Draper, for instance, in his Pain and Pleasure article. Like here, let me read how he defines it. Neither the nature nor the condition of sentient beings on Earth is the result of benevolent or malevolent actions performed by non-human persons. So even if you accept natural teleology, that's not really a violation of the letter of the hypothesis of indifference as defined by Draper there. But it is clearly a violation of the spirit of it. Anyway, this is another discussion. The point is, I think it's entirely possible that the real debate is not between theism and something like ordinary naturalism. Third, widespread theistic belief, or the common consent argument. So I think this argument works, but is not that strong at the end of the day. But I think it succeeds in a unique way, where other arguments for theism typically fail. I think it should get us to take theism seriously, just on its own. It should certainly prevent any rational person from seriously comparing God to Santa Claus or Harry Potter or something, let alone calling religion a mental illness. It's not that the argument is so strong that we ought to take theism seriously, it's like the specific subject matter of the argument that has this effect. I think one reason this argument feels different is because we're saying evidence of evidence is evidence. And of course it is, I mean it seems like any appeal to the consensus of experts is the same kind of thing. You're not really appealing directly to the evidence, you're appealing to evidence of the evidence. There are probably many times when you don't actually look into the evidence yourself, but just rely on the reports and the testimony of people who you think have the relevant training and ability to assess the evidence. And sometimes it's not even the consensus of people with relevant expertise, but just trusted authorities. Yeah, so I think it feels a little different for most people, because we're not saying, 
hey, look at this apparent teleology or contingency, and then trying to argue to God from there, we are appealing to a phenomenon that's kind of dependent on human beings. Yeah, it makes some people uncomfortable, but I think the kind of hand-waving responses to it are terrible. And I think some of the incredulity that this argument is met with comes down to an excessively pessimistic view about human rationality and the wisdom of crowds. People are not idiots. It might feel good to think that or say that, but it's not true. Anyway, it's hard to know how to weigh this evidence exactly, but I think it is evidence. I think it does work. And the peculiarities of the subject matter at least have this effect on me where it's like, I feel like I should take theism seriously purely as a result of the fact that most people do. And finally, religious experience. So I've been on the record for years at this point saying that if someone has a sufficiently compelling experience of God, there's just not much the atheist can say. And of course, very few have the kind of overwhelming experiences that would give someone the same confidence in God as my hypothetical defendant who knows on the basis of their memory that they didn't commit the crime they're accused of, even though the publicly available evidence against them is rather strong. If a theist finds themselves in that sort of position, then they're rational to believe in God. But for the, I would guess, vast majority of religious believers who don't have that kind of experience of God, you're stuck with me over here in cumulative case land. Speaking of the cumulative case, that's part of why I wanted to do this in the first place. I wanted to make it clearer both to atheists and theists listening to this show that this is how the debate tends to proceed. The best argument for theism isn't an argument, but a cumulative case. And the same goes for atheism. A cumulative case that examines as much of the relevant evidence as possible is the best defense of atheism. For about a year and a half at this point, ever since a little before the episode about Paul Draper's case for naturalism against William Lane Craig, that's the general approach I've been taking. And about a year ago, I explained why I'm an atheist in these terms, along with a few additional reasons. So I tried to do a similar thing for theism, though not nearly as comprehensive, if nothing else, to show how I think the dialectic ought to go. I think people like Draper and Swinburne gave us a good template. And I've very much enjoyed it, but I'm ready to finally hang up my theist hat and go back to serving Satan. One disclaimer, I did not make a comprehensive case for theism. This is not the total evidence that favors theism. It's just the stuff that was most interesting to me and struck me as the most defensible. Two things I didn't defend. First was the contingency argument, which I think is really interesting, but I think there's a general failure of stage two arguments. You know, the part where you actually get to God. And the second argument that I didn't bring up that I think is good is a moral knowledge argument. It's pretty much the only moral argument for theism that's worth anything. It concedes that atheists can be moral realists, believe in objective morality, but that it's hard to account for how we have moral knowledge. So say that you conceive of knowledge as justified true belief, just for the sake of argument. How do we come to have justified true beliefs in moral facts if we're just the product of natural evolutionary forces that seemingly have no tendency to put us in touch with these strange moral facts.
Anyway, maybe there will be an episode about that, or a debate, perhaps. And there are other more minor arguments. Anyway, I chose the four that I chose because I think that they're interesting and defensible. Arguing for something that goes beyond theism, that goes beyond the existence of something godlike, I have no idea. I wouldn't even know how to go about that. I mean, argue, like, for the resurrection or something? Like, I don't even think I could do that. I don't think I could do a devil's advocate defense of the resurrection. I mean, I don't think I could do it in good faith. I couldn't do it like how I just defended theism, where I actually mean the things that I'm saying. (laughs) So, the past couple weeks, I've been trying to take up the theist's perspective. And not just when I was planning out the content of the debate in these episodes, like really trying to see the world through a theistic lens. What would it be like to believe in God? I haven't been a Christian for years at this point. Trying to take up that perspective again has been interesting for many reasons. I've come away with more respect for theism, but it's also made me appreciate atheism a bit more. What atheism offers became clearer to me when I tried to walk a mile in the theist's shoes. That's one thing I'm working on next, exploring what atheism offers. Not just trivial things like not having to get up or go anywhere on Sundays. Maybe that's not so trivial, (laughs) but you know what I mean. What does atheism offer? So I think now is as good a time as any to bid farewell to Theist Emerson. It was fun while it lasted, but it must come to an end. This cannot go on. There is evidence for theism, but there's more evidence for atheism, particularly in the form of arguments from evil. So there's some evidence for the idea that God exists. There's more evidence for the idea that God doesn't exist. Though I can't lie, I think that the argument from psychophysical harmony in particular has raised my credence in theism higher than it was before. I mentioned this on Twitter and I think it annoyed some people, but it happens to be true. If it weren't for arguments from evil, I would just be an agnostic at this point. I think there are some good arguments for atheism that can get you to think that the evidence is roughly counterbalanced, which would make you an agnostic. And I think if you just put in brackets arguments from evil, then I think the evidence is roughly counterbalanced. So yeah, if it weren't for the problem of evil, I would be an agnostic. The thing that really pushes me over the edge would be the various arguments from evil. If you enjoy this content, if you find it valuable, please consider supporting it at patreon.com counter. Or if you like the stuff that's more about consciousness and less related to religion, you can go to patreon.com waldenpod. You can also just tell people about the podcast or the channel. That's very helpful. Or leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. So thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will talk to you next time.